Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer on this very first day of early voting in the state of Iowa. Just a note here before we get our discussion going, you can check whether you're registered to vote in Iowa by going to the Iowa Secretary of State's website. That's sos.iowa.gov. You can register to vote online, uh, download a voter registration form uh, to send to your county auditor. But Iowa, we also have same-day voter registration. That means you can register when you go to the polls to vote. Uh, Remember, you need to prove your identity with an ID and your residency. So you can cast your vote uh, as of today, your ballot early in person at your county auditor's office, or in some cases, if your county has it, a satellite voting location. The final day of in-person early voting is the day before Election Day. That is November 7th. Of course, Election Day is November 8th. All of you tuning in to Politics Wednesday should have (laughs) November 8th in your mind, um, have had it in your mind for some weeks now. In just a few moments, we'll be joined by Jim McCormick and Dennis Goldford uh, for some analysis of the the closest Iowa congressional races. But before that, uh, we want to talk with Karen Kadrowski. She's professor of political science at the director and director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women and Politics at Iowa State University. Hello, Karen. Hello. Thank you for the invitation today. I want to talk with you a few minutes. I have a special special development in the news yesterday. yesterday. President Biden vowed that if voters elect more Democratic senators and keep the House, he will send a bill to Congress to codify abortion protections into law. During a speech, let's listen to a little bit, yesterday at the Democratic National Committee, an event there in Washington, D.C., he had this to say. The court got Roe right nearly 50 years ago, and I believe Congress should codify Roe once and for all. Right now, we're short a handful of votes. If you care about the right to choose, then you got to vote. That's why in these midterm elections are so critical to elect more Democratic senators to the United States Senate and more Democrats to keep control of the House of Representatives. And folks, if we do that, here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. Biden said that if such a bill to codify abortion protections is passed, he will sign it in January on the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision way back in 1973. Karen, let's talk about this. Why is Biden making this pledge uh, three weeks before Election Day? Well, what he is trying to do is to um, remind people of the emotions that they felt when the Dobbs decision was handed down in June. So when we look at public opinion polls from that era, we see that abortion topped the list of issues that were motivating Democratic voters and that um, they were reacting definitely in opposition to the Dobbs decision. Mm-hmm. And the um, the number of state restrictions that were rapidly going into effect. What we have seen in public opinion polls since then, however, is that abortion has slipped 
down the list of what is motivating voters uh, with the economy and inflation and, uh, you know, sort of taking precedence. So what he's trying to do is to remind people and he literally asked them, remember how you felt um, so that he can, you know, help get Democrats elected to Congress. Yeah. How significant? You, you said there's been, a, I mean, the polling has shown the economy, inflation, other issues um, coming to the fore in recent weeks, according to polling nationwide. But but how significant is abortion as an issue uh, among um, voters? Um, which, for instance, potential voters is it mobilizing in terms of gender and age? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It seems to be mobilizing, especially young women voters. Now, young voters tend to be more supportive of the Democratic Party anyway, um, as are women, but this is sort of reinforcing it amongst that population. But it also seems to be mobilizing some older women who are concerned about daughters and granddaughters or also, you know, have been longtime um, abortion rights advocates. Um, And we, we see how that played out in Kansas, which really had that remarkable referendum earlier this summer. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, with Kansas, the vote was very clearly on a, a constitutional amendment or a law in the state that dealt with abortion specifically. What Biden is asking voters to do is to vote for an individual um, in the hopes that they would support a law in the future. And so that kind of makes it one step removed in the voter's mind um, and and gets, you know, confused and and integrated with all the other issues that might be on the mind of a voter when casting a vote for their member of Congress or their Senate. Mm -hmm. The the president vowed that if uh, voters uh, keep the uh, both chambers, the House and the Senate in Democratic hands, uh, his that will be his first priority to to quantify um, abortion protection. There, how likely is that stated goal, given what we know from polling now and just the nature of midterms, with a, a president, uh, a Democratic president in power, and and both uh, uh, both chambers in the hands of the Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a great talking point. And certainly if the Democrats maintain control of the House, which is really a long shot, they would be able to get such a law through the the House of Representatives fairly handily. But when Biden says that we're short just a handful of votes to get this kind of law through the Senate, what he's really meaning is two hands full, right? Mm -hmm. The Democrats have, um, you know, 50 votes in the Senate plus plus the vice president, Kamala Harris. Uh, but in order to make this filibuster proof, they need a vote of, you know, 60 Democrats. And that's extremely unlikely. Yeah. So so the second goal here um, with that first goal, really difficult to realize for Democrats and the president. The, the other goal is, is just to mobilize, you would say. Yeah, exactly. And um, and I think to maintain the momentum, um, I have, have long been saying since the Dobb decision was handed down that my concern is, is that a lot of these new voters um, who are inexperienced voters and are very motivated by the abortion issue will be disappointed by the outcome of the 2022 election. In most states, um, abortion has become a state level issue. And uh, the 
this the abortion decision was handed down after the filing deadlines in most states, if not all, and after a lot of state primaries. And so they might show up on election day and find out that their state legislator is running unopposed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the cast of characters in state legislatures is not likely to change a great deal. So abortion rights advocates need to start working probably on November 9th to come up with uh, candidates who will run in 2024 and pass legislation that they like after the in 2025. Karen Kudrowski of Iowa State University will be looking forward to further analysis for you at a future date. But for now, thank you uh, for drilling down on this issue with us in this first few minutes of Politics Day. Karen, until next time. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Let's spend the rest of the hour with Dennis Goldford, professor of political science at uh, Drake University. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Ben. Jim McCormick is with us as well, professor of political science at Iowa State University in Ames. Hi, Jim. Hi, Ben. Let's, uh, with uh, less than three weeks to go before Election Day, early voting uh, starting today, uh, let's see what you all think of uh, some of the new polls of uh, the most most competitive congressional races we are facing here. Uh, Let's talk about the Senate race, Um, a new poll showing uh, Republican uh, Senator uh, Chuck Grassley's his lead over uh, Democrat uh, Mike Franken narrowing to three percentage point. This is a new Des Moines Register MediaCom Iowa poll. Forty-six um, percent uh, for Grassley, forty-three percent for Franken among likely voters. Another four percent would vote for someone else. Four percent would not vote. Three percent not sure. This is a poll of 804 Iowa adults, including 620 likely voters, uh, conducted uh, October 9th through the 12th by Selzer and Company, um, a renowned uh, polling firm, of course. Uh, Franken has improved his performance, Dennis, since July. Uh, That previous number was 47 to 39 percent. And I'm seeing also two key Analysts, Sabato's Crystal Ball, Cook Political Report, shifting their ratings of this race from safe or solid Republican uh, to likely Republican win. Uh, what does this, la- this latest poll tell you and in, in the, in the shift? Well, first of all, we have to recognize, as uh, Seltzer and Company would be the first to acknowledge, that any poll is a snapshot in time. And it's it's valid during the time it's taken, and if things don't change, then that continues forward and is pretty accurate, or things may curve or swerve after that point. So that's not locked in stone, but nonetheless, we can assume that this is a pretty solid poll, and that suggests, again, a a, a new weakness on the part of Senator Grassley. Uh, from that, that earlier poll to this one, his rating didn't really change very much, it's just Franken's came up. Uh, Franken is a is a strong candidate. He's got that military background from the Navy. Um, he had a little bit of touch of uh, question that was resolved apparently from uh, uh, a, a certain issue in in regard to uh, questionable activity. Um, but I think that as we look at the polls, the significant difference is um, independence, and independents have dropped in their support of Senator Grassley. Now we remember that. He won his first race in against John Culver in 1980 with 54% of the vote. 
in no succeeding election did he win with less than 60%. So if he's sitting right now down below 40%, uh, excuse me, below 50%, that really is a significant change. Uh, the big question is whether that will stay there or will resolve in his favor. Mm-hmm. If I'm reading the numbers correctly in this latest poll, you're referring to the independents, uh, uh, that uh, Franken leading among independents, leading Grassley by 11 percentage points, 46 percent to 35 percent. This same poll back in July showed independents were nearly evenly split uh, between Franken and, and Grassley. So that's that's important. J- Jim, let's go to you. How, how are you uh, taking in this race? So what do you have to add to Dennis's analysis? Well, I, well, I think the independence is, is really the issue. And what, what it seems to me what has happened is that Franken has become more known uh, to uh, independence. I mean, if you look at in terms of the uh, identifiers with political parties uh, in that poll as well, they're still pretty much staying at home. Uh, and so it's really been, it seems to me, that Franken has been able to um, get out there, become known, uh, and get his message out uh, that that's something that you know that Grassley at least in the past had been able to do but uh, but but it clearly has not and I think it really goes to the question that always comes down to these uh, Senate races there are a number of them across the country right now is the quality of the candidates uh, and you know Franken had had run before he has that experience of running uh, in the primary at least mm-hmm. uh, and so he, he has gotten some name recognition, but now he's been able to uh, uh, expand his name recognition, uh, has been able to stand and hold forth in a, in a debate uh, with, with Grassley. So I think, you know, I, I think that's really what uh, Dennis said in terms of the movement of the independence here is really what is crucial. And I, I would say that it's, it's really a function of uh, Franken uh, getting his position known uh, to those independents that has helped him to move up, you know, from uh, what he had, what, 35 percent up to uh, 43 percent in terms of uh, among independents here. Yeah. Dennis, uh, let, the, let me, yeah, go I, ahead, I, Dennis. I Sorry. To what, to what Jim said. Uh, two points. Number one, if this were sort of a, a quote unquote normal year, um, this, I think, this, this, this polling result would be a lot more significant. But we're looking at a Republican wave here. Uh, in which Democrats are really on the defensive, so uh, more so in the House than in the Senate. But still, I think that means we need to temper our estimates of the significance of this poll as a predictor of what will actually happen. And the second thing is independents, at least here in Iowa, but I think generally are a very thin reed on which to base some sort of electoral victory. Uh, Really quickly, you know, in midterms, voting turnout drops. In 2018, our last midterm rounding, we had about 61% turnout in Iowa. But Republicans and Democrats both take voting a lot more seriously than independents do. In, in 18, 72% of Republicans voted, 68% of Democrats voted, only 46% of independents voted. So this is likely voters, according to the Seltzer poll, but still, um, independence may be the key, but it's a, it's a little bit of a flabby key, I would say. Mm, okay. I, think, I think there's one other point, if I could just add, too, and, and that is, I've, I've been surprised that Franken hasn't made more of the results of this poll. That suggests to me that maybe there's some internal polling is not quite as optimistic uh, as this mm-hmm. particular poll. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think that that has to be taken taken into account, too, in understanding this. Normally what you would see 
is, I think, you know, bombastic kind of statement. You're all, all the way up to 43 percent here. You know, this is really a, a tight race. And I and, and maybe uh, Dennis can correct me on this, but I haven't seen that kind of uh, enthusiasm coming out of the Franken camp. And so it seems to me that probably that they're hedging their bets a little bit in terms of what their internal polling is showing. And I, I, you can make the same case with the, with the Grassley people, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. I'll just add here that uh, you can hear in-depth uh, conversations uh, with Michael Franken and uh, U.S. Senator Grassley from this program. Uh, Franken was last week, the week before that, uh, Senator Grassley, uh, by um, signing up uh, for our River River podcast or going to iowapublicradio.org. Good 20-minute conversations with each of them uh, I had on this uh, uh, program also featuring some email questions from you, uh, Iowa Public Radio listeners. If you just joined us, Jim McCormick is with us of Iowa State University. Dennis Goldford of Drake University, our two political scientists uh, on this Politics Wednesday, the very first day of early voting. Early voting now continuing uh, through November seventh, the first uh, the uh, the day before Election Day. Uh, so if uh, you need to vote early, uh, you can start and um, take care of that at your county courthouse or a satellite um, location provided by your county. Well, uh, gentlemen across the nation, uh, we know that if Republicans net five more seats in the U.S. House uh, in this election, they will retake the majority. Uh, Iowa's congressional races could be key in determining which party holds power. We have an, an I guess we only have four House seats, but we have three of those sort of slated to be competitive, some more than others. I'd like to get your views on what you see as Iowa's uh, most uh, competitive races based on the polling uh, you're, you're seeing. Uh, uh, Jim, let's start with you. What, what uh, when, you, when you sort of look at the most competitive of Iowa's districts, where do you start? What do you put at the top of the list as toss-up? Well, I think the third district, it really is the one with, between Axney and, and Nunn. Uh, you know, that is a really a very, very competitive district. It's, it's changed slightly in terms of the um, change in the apportionment that, that took place. Uh, a little bit more rural, but as you, as you recall, um, Congresswoman actually uh, won that district really because she has been able to uh, get really large uh, margins in Polk County. Now, some of the counties that have been added you know, it seems to me, are probably on the other side of the slate here. And so it'll be interesting to see if she continues to get that very large margin in Polk County, which will offset uh, some of those rural counties here. I mean, the the register um, analysis, although I'm a little bit skeptical of looking at the districts from the register polling, because the margin of error, uh, which uh, the Seltzer people acknowledge is a seven or eight percent, it says that it's really tight. Uh, you know, and I, I suspect it is really tight, but I, I don't know if we can have too much confidence in those numbers because uh, the margin of error uh, is is so very large for those, for frankly, all of the districts uh, that they uh, that they have talked about here. The aggregate number at you know that the Republican have 51 percent across the House uh, candidates and 43 percent for Democrats. I suppose you can have a little bit more confidence in uh, in that. Um, and independence as well. But but I, I'm a little bit skeptical of ha- having a, a clear information about the, how close or how distant yeah. 
uh, the third district is, for example. Right, and I'm glad you brought up that point. Dennis, comment on that. All this is a generic ballot that that the um, that the Iowa poll was based on. The Seltzer Company here did too. So that means the in this case in the third district, the the, the candidates were not named. Cindy Axney, uh, state senator, uh, Zach Nunn, and, and we look at the third district the, in its new form. Dallas and Polk uh, there. Um, a, a comment on what you see here, and, and if you are also a bit skeptical of, of that polling. Well, uh, I, I'm not able to, to, to make an opinion about that particular polling itself. I would say that uh, two points. Number one, uh, you know, we used to say all politics is local. And now, of course, what seems to matter more than anything else is whether there's a D or an R at the end of a candidate's name, uh, you know, after the dash. And um, we, we look at the third district. Of course, if you look at Iowa as a whole, in three of the four congressional districts, there's a slight Democratic registration majority in Iowa 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. What makes the difference and what turns the state as a whole more Republican is that as of uh, October 1st, 94,000 Republican margin in the fourth district. Uh, so that's what makes the difference. But the other three districts are relatively balanced. But when we when we look at this Axne Nun race, however we we decide it in terms of generic ballot or whatever, as as, as Jim accurately pointed out, I mean Cindy Axne's political life uh, hinges entirely on Polk County. In the old third, with 16 districts in both 18 and 20, she lost 15 of those 16 districts, the rural districts. The, 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 county, the counties, and, you mean, yeah. Counties, right, mm-hmm. sorry. And as Jim said, that, uh, that it, Polk County was a difference. And that margin was thinner in, 19, in 2020 than it was in 2018. In this new third district, there are 21 counties. And using, we don't have a, a race from 2020 with Cindy Axney in the new district, but uh, of those 21 counties, Donald Trump won 20 of those 21 counties over Joe Biden in 2020. So again, everything for Cindy Axney hinges upon Polk County. The only thing she could do in those more rural counties is hope not to lose as badly as she has in the past. Mm-hmm. Jim, can I toss it to you for a 30-second answer? We're coming up on a break. Um, how do you evaluate the, their campaigns here um, in the 3rd District, uh, Nunn and Axney? They've been a re- really exciting kind of campaigns with a huge amount of advertising uh, on television and uh personal connections that you've seen, um, you know, making, making their way around the district here. Uh, I think it's been a, a very expensive campaign, uh, but also, I think, probably an enlightening campaign. And, and you're, really, you have two very good candidates uh, that are really competing. I mean, candidate quality here is not an issue. Uh, and so it will really be interested, interesting to see exactly uh, who, sort of who comes out on top. Okay, and uh, we'll be back with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River just inside three weeks before Election Day, the first day of early voting in Iowa. Jim McCormick, you were just hearing there, professor of political science at Iowa State University. Dennis Goldford uh, pairing up with uh, Jim, uh, professor of political science at Drake University. I'm going to ask them to hang on past the break, and we'll be back to talk about more of the most competitive Iowa congressional races. Join us, 1-866-780-9100. Back in a moment. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine. 
offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. We're back with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News on this October 19th, the very first day of early voting uh, for Iowa. You can vote early now until the day before Election Day, uh, November 7th. November 8th is Election Day. Joining us uh, this hour, uh, Dennis Goldford, Professor of Political Science at Drake University, Jim McCormick, uh, uh, Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. At the moment, we're looking at the uh, some of the most competitive congressional races in Iowa, reminding ourselves that if Republicans net five more seats in the U.S. House in November, they will retake the majority, and that will be a game-changer, of course, um, uh, from what we've had the past two years where the Democrats have been in power in both chambers, as well as holding the White House, uh, of course, President Biden uh, there in office. We talked before the break uh, about the uh, 3rd District, Iowa 3rd District incumbent, uh, the only Democrat in Iowa's congressional district, Cindy Axney, uh, running for her third term against uh, Republican State Senator Zach Nunn. Let's switch over to another uh, competitive race. Um, uh, I'm sure you'll agree. Before we do that, I should mention that we have two candidates on this program tomorrow. I'll be talking uh, with State Senator Liz Mathis, a Democrat. She's challenging incumbent U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson, a Republican. Um, And uh, also on the program tomorrow, I'll be talking with Iowa Representative, uh, State Representative Christina Bohannon, who is challenging U.S. Representative Marionette Miller Meeks, a Republican. Uh, So let's talk about those two races. Let's talk about. Iowa's newly formed 2nd District, we're going to have to get used to the fact now that the 2nd District is on top in the uh, in eastern Iowa, including uh, Blackhawk County over to Dubuque County, but also down to Lynn County and Powersheet County uh, in, in the south there. Let's, um, uh, Jim, you start us off on this one. Uh, Ashley Hinson there, and we know that first um, term incumbents are their most at their most vulnerable. Um, she's running to win her second term against State Senator Liz Mathis. Um, uh, what is your read on this? Well, I think it's going to be another very close race. I mean, the, some of the uh, national uh, reporting suggests, like the Cook Report says that, you know, it sort of leans uh, Republican here. But you got to remember that first district, second district now is one that has flipped back and forth uh, over the years here. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be a very, very tight race. And it it is kind of interesting that we have, what, two former uh, TV anchors, I right. believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, running against one another. Uh, so they obviously have a great deal of presence uh, in terms of talking about issues and, and talking uh, with the public and so on. So, and I, I guess I, I did see the report that... Um, Congresswoman uh, Henson was now released from the hospital. I know that she had been hospitalized for a couple days. So yeah. I was interested to hear that she's going to be on your program tomorrow. No, not uh, not Ashley Henson, Senator Mathis, her, appoint, her opponent. And yes, Ashley Henson has been released from the hospital. I was reading a, uh, a kidney infection, and uh, she's uh, thankfully been released. Oh, so she's not going to be on the program. No, no, her opponent will be. uh, Her opponent will be. Yes. And and just to remind everyone, we have extended invitations to all of the major party candidates uh, for Congress, and whether they accept those invitations is up to them. 
And we're glad to have State Senator Liz Mathis tomorrow with us and uh, Iowa Representative, Iowa State Representative Christina Bohannon. Yeah, go ahead, Jim, if you had anything okay. to add. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks for the clarifying for that, that for me. Uh, but I think this will be a very close race. I mean, you have obviously some counties that are heavily Democratic uh, in it uh, in this particular district. You think of Black Hawk County, Dubuque County, which has always been a little bit competitive, though. And I, and I think actually I have to go back and look, but I, I think uh, that Henson actually did very, very well uh, in, in Dubuque County here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that it, this this race will, again, as it was, you know, be a two or three point race. Uh, much like it was uh, uh, two years ago here. Uh, Dennis Goldford, uh, your read on the Iowa's new 2nd District, its congressional race. We have to remember that even if you were the incumbent in the old districts, plus or minus counties uh, after before and after reapportionment and redistricting, um, you're running, in a sense, in a new district because you haven't run in precisely this district before. So while, um, uh, you know, Cindy Axney, Marianne Ormeeks, uh, uh, Ashley Hinson, they're incumbents technically, they're all running in districts that aren't quite their incumbent districts. So mm-hmm. that opens the possibility a little bit more for challengers. But, yeah, as Jim said very correctly, they're both women who have uh, worked in television. They have a strong presence. They're very comfortable looking at talking to the ca- uh, the uh, uh, the camera and what we see with Congresswoman Hinson is what we've seen really with with uh, most Republican candidates they're running that script from uh, the National Republican headquarters I guess which is you run against Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and so much of the advertising has their faces or it actually verbally connects the candidate in question in an attack ad uh, to these unpopular Democrats, certainly among Republicans at least. So um, it, it verges on cliche. I've been saying it for you know decades, but you know the old line is that in real estate, the three most important factors are location, location, and location. In electoral politics, the three most important factors are turnout, turnout, turnout. Yes, there are some Democratic counties, uh, as, as Jim mentioned, but as I said when I cited some figures earlier, we have to remember that in Iowa, at least, Republicans take voting more seriously than Democrats do. So the question for uh, the Democratic challengers in each of these races is, can you get Democrats to show up? Okay, let's switch down to the lower right-hand corner of Iowa, if I may put it that way, to Iowa's new 1st District, where incumbent U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks, Republican, being challenged by Iowa, uh, State Representative Christina uh, Bohannon. Uh, Bohannon will be on this program uh, tomorrow. Uh, Just to mention that again, uh, uh, Dennis, start us off with the the, the 1st District. Uh, This is, we have to remember... uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks in the old, what was then the 2nd District, not to make it too confusing, but it is a little bit right. confusing. Okay, she won um, uh, her contest in 2020 by six votes out of some 400,000 votes cast. Uh, so that was the very definition of a squeaker. How do you size up uh, this, uh, her, her first, uh, uh, her attempt at getting a second term here? I think she has a slight advantage. I think it's close. It's not certainly like the fourth where Representative Feenstra will blow out his opposition uh, because of the nature of the fourth district. This is much narrower, but I still think there's a slight Republican advantage. Um, first of all, with the with the six-vote margin from last time, that should tell anybody, if you think your vote doesn't count, 
it counts. Maybe not necessarily in the way you think it will all the time, but it can and does count. So vote. You know, that's that's your voice. But I think it's interesting in terms of the television advertising, both candidates are running as they're trying to establish their 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 credentials as as uh as real down home Iowans. Um, you know, Bohannon will talk about walking through the trailer park and talked mm-hmm. about how she grew up in circumstances like that. And Mil- Miller Meeks talks about uh, growing up and joining the military and and becoming a doctor and those sorts of things. So they're they're campaigning in terms of their sense of saying, I know who you are. I can represent who you are. But some of the negative ads against Bohannon emphasize the fact, oh, she's a liberal elite college professor or law professor. And that, of course, for Republicans in many rural areas is always uh, uh, a very harsh criticism to uh, to hear from their standpoint. So, again, I think it says the long way of saying is that I think there's a slight Republican advantage. Um, and, again, if it weren't a Republican wave year for the House, Bohannon might be better suited, but still, uh, she's not out of it at this point. Okay. Iowa's first district. Your read on it, Jim? Yeah, I think uh, Dennis basically has got it right on the mark here. I, I would say one thing. There actually, in that in that first district, there actually are more Democratic um, identifiers, but and, and there's obviously a large number of independents. My sense is that the way the district was uh, reapportioned here is that a few more counties that would be Republican-leaning uh, went into that district. So that gives, uh, again, Miller Meeks uh, a little bit of a uh, of an uptick here. And my sense is always that some of these independents are not truly independent, particularly in some of these rural districts. They're likely to be uh, Republican-leaners. So, again, I think that's why that probably Miller Meeks has a has a slight advantage there. Yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating if you do call up... Um Touch your browser to find the Iowa's new congressional districts and county county by county breakdown. Just see how this will shake out in this in this first election. Uh, we'll have these uh, districts for the next ten years. This first election with this uh, new new map here. Um, uh, let's switch over. Uh, let me let me do this. We have an email from Dave in Cedar Rapids, um, which concerns uh, uh, the congressional elections uh, we've been talking about. Dave writes, I've been seeing a lot of online ads that purport to tie Liz Mathis to AOC and the Green New Deal, as well as to Nancy Pelosi. I suspect the ads are from outside groups. How much is this race being followed out of state by operatives, journalists? How effective is uh, painting is it painting uh, Liz Mathis with AOC's brush in Iowa and in this district? So, Dennis, address that uh, outside interests uh, in in these races. Uh, we have monies coming from out of state. Um, you've no doubt seen some of the same ads that Dave in Cedar Rapids has. This is not at all unusual. Again, as our our elections become increasingly nationalized, candidates, their own campaigns. <clears throat> they sponsor particular ads, you know, I'm so-and-so, and I approve of this message. Uh, but then you have particular interest groups. Then you have the national party organizations for the Senate or for the House, depending upon the race. They come in and advertise in this way. Um, the problem with looking at so many of these ads, number one, is they're designed more to uh, scare people. They tend to be negative from the outside groups. They're designed more to paint a negative picture of the the other side, the candidate they're opposing. 
and 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 make people uncomfortable and and really nervous about supporting this particular candidate. And the other factor there is even if they put some sort of supposed citation for their claims, you can't see it fast enough to make a note of it if you want to check up on how accurate that particular claim is or is it something from uh, uh, ripped out of context for both sides. So I think that, um, yes, this is part of this onslaught designed mostly to raise the negatives of people you oppose. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, switch over to the governor's uh, race, uh, less than three weeks out from Election Day. Dennis Goldford of Drake University, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, if you've just joined us, the final 10 minutes or so of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. Monday night, uh, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and Democratic challenger Deidre Jagir disagreed on a number of areas, uh, abortion policy, eminent domain use, tax cuts. That was during a debate hosted um, Monday night by Iowa PBS. This is the only debate uh, in the Iowa governor's race this year, as Governor Reynolds has refused this year's request to do three debates, as uh, the governor agreed to in 2018. Let's listen to a couple of um, uh, their statements uh, on taxes. Now, Reynolds uh, touted during the debate the sweeping tax cuts she signed into law this year that will begin to take effect in January. She highlighted the $1.9 billion budget surplus the state was left with at the end of the last fiscal year. Let's start off with Desir, though, in this, and then we'll hear from the governor. Desir said the $55 in savings that Iowans could see from this tax cut doesn't resolve issues with the state's education and mental health systems. You know, we see the degradation to our education system happening right before our eyes. We're asking our systems to do more with a lot less. We're seeing that in corrections. We're seeing that in health care and mental health care services. That surplus is evidence that the Iowa taxpayer dollar is not going to work. It's just being hoarded. Now, for her part, uh, Governor Reynolds said $55 can help working families, especially in the face of high inflation. She criticized Democrats' policies. The bottom line is they think that they think that they know what to do with your money better than you do. They want to take your money and develop government programs instead of giving it back to Iowans and letting them choose what to do with their money. Okay, Jim, uh, take your, the first crack at the governor's race. We're seeing a, a huge poll difference. What, 17 uh, points the governor over Dejir? But uh, set that aside for the moment. What, what are you seeing otherwise? Well, I think that there are really some issues here that have really divided the parties here. And, you know, the, the popularity that, that uh, the governor has uh, throughout the state probably, you know, overrides even those differences. I mean, I think this year brings up a, a good point. I mean, she talked about education funding, and maybe you're going to get into that. I mean, that, you know, and calling for about a $300 million increase uh, in, uh, in education funding here. Uh, rather immediately to to try to uh, address that question here, uh, I you know I I don't think that that has the kind of broad appeal um, you know that that can really get can really turn the great race. The same thing with regard and given that the the whole issue of school choice was also talked about in the debate, um, you know that you know the governor is uh, you know very adamant about getting um, a support for for school choice for. For parents and so on, and given the kind of turmoil that we've seen nationally over, you know, over education in terms of parents' involvement and so on, again, I think that's a, that's an issue that that uh, this year has a very difficult time 
uh, you know, making making real headway on. Mm-hmm. Now, Reynolds has barely mentioned Desjere throughout her reelection campaign. She's focused a lot of her attacks on on President Biden. Uh, Dennis, y- your comment on this race? Uh, I think that uh, the uh, the lead the governor has has more to do with Desjere's weakness, which than the governor's strength, which may be the fact that Desjere is not known very well still across the state. She has what maybe ten percent of the money the governor has. Uh, the governor's smart. Anytime you're well ahead, you don't want to even acknowledge your opponent, so you pay no real attention to your opponent. But I think you know we normally say in an American elections with a two-person race. If the winner wins with 55% of the vote or more, the race really wasn't competitive. Well, Governor, Governor Reynolds beat Fred Hubble four years ago with about 50-point-something percent of the vote, I think it was. So it wasn't huge. And a lead now of 52 to 37 or, or 35, whichever it might be, yeah, I'd be very happy with a lead like that, no question about it. But that 52% itself is not impressive. But I think, uh, again, Iowa is increasingly a red state. Uh, it's not red the way Alabama or Mississippi or Texas is red, but it's, it's not really a purple state any longer. And that gives a substantial advantage to a sitting governor on the Republican side. Um, one of the couple of questions I wish had been asked were, were, were first of all, to ask uh, the governor, why do women, a majority of women, support your opponents, whereas a majority of men support you? Uh, and I would ask the same thing of Desjere. And second, the question for the governor that uh, perhaps Desjere should have asked is, with this this budget surplus, how much of that comes from actually federal money uh, mm. that was criticized by Republicans uh, as as overzealous federal spending? So that's you know wanting to have your cake and eat it too. I don't know what the answer there is, but I think the moderators, I wish they had pushed those particular questions. Very interesting questions, uh, Dennis. Let's finish up, if we could, with the last five minutes on the uh, what we're broadly calling the threat to democracy. Um, yesterday, Representative Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, uh, calling her House January 6th Select Committee work, in her words, probably the most important thing I've ever done professionally, said the panel would, uh, in a short amount of time, subpoena former President Trump. Uh, We remember last week the panel unanimously voted to issue a subpoena for Trump to testify under oath uh, about the insurrection. Uh, Trump has declined to say whether he'll testify, repeatedly criticizing the panel uh, for its investigation. But I want to couple, get your comments together with with one of the polling points of the New York Times Siena College poll that came out in the last few days. Voters overwhelmingly believe American democracy is under threat, both uh, Democrats and Republicans, but Racine seems rather apathetic about that danger, uh, with uh, a few calling it the nation's most pressing problem. Uh, Jim, I'm sure you've seen this. How do you interpret this? Democracy under threat, uh, but not our most pressing problem. Yeah, but also in that poll, uh, Ben, you may have seen that that they asked also a question about, uh, you know, whether the government works for you or for, for elites. And in fact, uh, the majority of the public was in favor of elites. So I think, you know, the kind of the cynicism here uh, about democracy and also the cynicism about the role of government uh, is what we're seeing uh, with the American public. Uh, I was just flipping through. We were trying to look, I think, uh, as the most important question, only like something like, 8% of the public saw 
uh, democracy or the threat to democracy as the most important issue yeah. uh, in their voting calculation. And I think it, it really goes to the, the, to the problem, if I might put it this way, that many people don't think the government works very well. And there's a, there's a cynicism towards, uh, towards the, uh, the outcomes that the, that the government produces here. And, uh, yeah, th- there, there is a perception of the threat to democracy, uh, but they're not quite really quite what you, to do about it when, when they also see that uh, the government is not really performing uh, for their best outcomes. I was really surprised yeah. that the, the percentage showed that, that, uh, uh, that they thought the government was really working for powerful elites. Yeah. Uh, to you, Dennis, with the final minute of our program, um, greater urgency to concerns about the economy than to fears about the, the fate of our country's political system. And I think that's very dangerous. Quick 20-second story. In 1996, Jack Kemp was running with Bob Dole against Clinton Gore, and of course they lost. At a Republican rally, the speaker before Kemp said, we have to defeat our enemies, the Democrats. And Kemp stopped him and said, no, you're wrong. The Democrats are not our enemies. They're our opponents. We're all Americans. The concern here is that we don't live in that country anymore. Elections work only when the losers agree to lose. And a Republican small R popular government based upon the consent of the governed cannot function without a basic minimum of trust in the good and honorable attentions of our political opponents. And that's both of those of what's been rubbed raw over the past uh, decade or so, I would say. We'll leave those as the final words for this politics edition of River to River. Dennis Goldford, professor of political science at Drake University. Jim McCormick, professor of political science at Iowa State University. Dennis and Jim, uh, always a pleasure to spend time with you and your expertise. Thank you very much. Great fun. Thanks a lot. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Tomorrow on this program, we'll hear from State Representative Christina Bohannon, the Democrat challenging incumbent Marionette Miller-Meeks, Congresswoman Meeks. Also from Liz Mathis, the Democrat challenging incumbent Republican Ashley Hinson. We we'll hope you'll uh, tune in for that. Today's River to River, produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care and hope again you tune in tomorrow. ¶¶